You're listening to Sunday on the Commons, a podcast featuring sermons from the United Congregational Church in Little Compton, Rhode Island. Holy Week begins this Sunday as we travel with Jesus into Jerusalem, where he is hailed as the Messiah, the long-awaited king, by cheering crowds waving palm. What is this strange palm parade about? How does this same joyous crowd, shouting Christ's praises on Palm Sunday, end up shouting, Crucify it! just four days later? Let's listen as we remember the extraordinary claim of our faith, that God's love is more powerful than the darkest darkness, more powerful even than death. The first reading today is from Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Here ends the first reading. from the Gospel of Luke, and is the story of the Palm Parade. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Order your disciples to stop. But Jesus answered, I tell you, 
If these were silent, the stones would cry out. Here ends the reading. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your eyes, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Growing up, our big old parsonage was on the parade route for the 4th of July. My brother and I would peer out of the window with excitement as the local VFW chapters would line up and the marching bands would warm up and there was always like one bagpipe band that was like particularly loud and it was just so much fun. One year, my grandparents came for the 4th of July weekend and my grandmother was really fidgety and frankly kind of grumpy. And my brother, who was about nine, I think, at the time, was really excited because that year, some old bombers were going to do a flyover, and he was just pumped. And as they roared across the sky, he looked up in wonder, and he was like, whoa, cool. They're not so cool when they're dropping bombs on your head, said my grandmother. We both turned and stared at her. My grandmother grew up in Germany during World War II, but we had never heard her talk about it before. I would later learn that her father, who was Jewish, had been imprisoned at a camp in Dachau. Her older sister was forced to work at a labor camp in Dresden, and that her family almost starved during this war. Her childhood of parades, childhood experience of parades, was very different than mine. It was Nazis marching and waving swastika flags. Crowds cheering at the mighty display of military power as the men and boys goose-stepped out to conquer the world and eliminate anyone weak or vulnerable or different in their path. It was no wonder my grandmother had been agitated and dour as the drum corps rehearsed and the local military groups lined up in the streets. I didn't fully understand her feelings of disapproval and fear at the time, but I sensed there was some deeper current of meaning behind parades, one that could potentially contain something frightening, powerful, and even sinister. And I've never looked at parades the same way since that day. It wasn't until much, much later, of course, that I learned that throughout history, parades were not primarily about giant floats and silly clowns and candy being thrown from strange vehicles, but rather they were tools to display power. Parades served to exalt kings before their subjects. They were used to celebrate the victories of great military leaders, to whip up nationalistic or ethnic sentiments over and against the other, the enemy, to rally the troops for battle, to intimidate the enemy. Do you know who were masters of the art of parade? The Romans. The Romans. In triumphal processions, they commemorated the military victories of their generals who would wear crowns of laurels on their heads, and they'd get to dress up as king for a day and ride in chariots drawn by four horses. They would drag the plunder that they had seized and battle along behind them to show their wealth, and the people that they had captured and enslaved were forced to march behind them. Crowds would gather and cheer with praise at this stunning display of power and victory. None of these things sound very Jesus-y, do they? No. So what is the deal? What is the meaning of this palm parade that forms around Jesus 
as he makes his way into Jerusalem. On the one hand, Jesus is king. He is the Messiah, which means anointed one. Because upon becoming king in the ancient times, you were anointed with oil. That was the sign of your kingship. In the Hebrew scriptures, the prophets had foretold the coming of a Messiah, a king who would rise up and save his people and usher in a new kingdom of peace and prosperity. And so many people were waiting for this Messiah to come. So when Jesus rides in, and everyone, his disciples are all yelling, this is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, the crowd gets excited. Could this be the long-awaited king that they have hoped for? Well, it is, but the problem is, the king they hope for is not the king they get. The crowds that welcome Jesus with hosannas and palms really want a strong man, a military hero, someone who looks just like their Roman conquerors, but who's on their side. Sure, the ruler would look more like them and share their customs, their social norms, but he would come with a mighty, a mighty army to topple the Roman Empire and subjugate the, their enemies. The people would rise up and fight for him, and he would bring freedom through military victory, restore his people to power. But that's not the king they get. They get Jesus. And Jesus comes not in the name of the usual powers of the world, but in the name of God himself. Not to establish a throne in place of the emperor, but to usher in God's own kingdom. And the rules, it turns out, are different there. Jesus does not come with great armies. He comes with a ragtag troop of dusty disciples, literally students. He does not march in on a military steed. He rides a young donkey colt borrowed from a local family, which is just as ridiculous sounding as it sounds. It's just ridiculous to think of Jesus riding in on a donkey. This is not... That's not exactly what you think of when you think of prestige, right? He comes not to attack with violence. He comes to teach, to serve, to heal, to challenge the status quo. He comes in love to give all he has, even his life, to show us and embody for us this other way of being, the way of God's kingdom. And at the heart of this way, is not brute force, not control of land or political systems, not revenge against the enemy. It is love. Love for these tired disciples who shout the truth of Christ's kingship, even while they do not comprehend what kind of kingdom he represents. Love for the excited crowds who cry out in hope that he will save them, though none of them understand what saving them will mean or cost. And this love that Jesus shows is extraordinary because it persists for his disciples even when they betray him, desert him, deny him. It endures for these crowds even when their cries of Hosanna become cries of crucify him. This love extends even to Pontius Pilate who will condemn him, even for the soldiers who will hang him on the cross, even for the thieves who will be strung up on either side of him. This is a love that is so baffling and unlike our world as we know it, so undeserved and beyond our doing, that it can only be called grace. And that is what the crowds can't fathom, what none of us can fathom, really, because we are so used to the ways of the world, 
the greed and the grasping and the selfish advancement of the kings and tyrants and rulers of our earth, that we don't know what to do with this self-sacrificing king on a donkey who walks not to seize an earthly throne, but to give himself in love on a cross. Now, as Jesus enters the city and the crowd picks up with excitement, the Pharisees get nervous. As religious rulers living in Jerusalem, they know what a parade means. It means a display of kingly authority or military power. And they know that the occupying Romans will not stand for such a display for any king but their emperor, who, by the way, they call Lord because they believed he was divinely ordained. To make matters worse, the disciples' chant makes the implied kingship of Jesus explicit. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees are fearful that violence will break out. They say to Jesus, teacher, order your disciples to stop. And Jesus replies, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. The stones would cry out. I love that. In other words, there is simply no point trying to silence the disciples or the crowds because the kingship of Jesus, albeit a radically different kind of kingship from that displayed by the Romans, is so apparent in this moment that even the heavy, lifeless stones could see the truth of his identity, the king who comes in the name of our God. So this is why when we gather to celebrate on Palm Sunday, we shout Hosanna and proclaim that Christ is indeed king we wave palm, from, palm fronds, which are emblems of royalty reserved only for kings, and we sing glory, laud, and honor. But we have to remember, always, what kind of king Jesus was, the one who came to turn the world's power on its head, to lift up the lowly, to heal the sick, to reach out to the most vulnerable members of our society and offer them sustenance, compassion, healing, and an invitation to belong. We have to remember what kind of a parade that Jesus marched in, one that redefined kingship entirely. He marched not to shore up his own power or control, but with humility and simplicity. He marched to conquer pride and wealth. He rode in to serve and heal and offer grace, to drive out selfishness and greed he came with extraordinary sacrificial love, which proved stronger than evil, stronger even than death. And this is the king we proclaim. This is the kingdom we seek and work for. This week I came across a quotation from the wonderful saint of the Catholic Church, Oscar Romero. Um, he was a priest, became archbishop in El Salvador, and he bravely spoke out for equality and justice for his people during a really violent and oppressive regime throughout the 1970s. Many of you may remember Romero. He was assassinated while celebrating mass in the middle of worship in 1980. And he was killed for speaking out against the cruelty and corruption of his government. I decided to use his quote in the meditation in today's bulletin. But in case you didn't get a chance to read it, I'd like to share it with you. For the church, the many abuses of human life, liberty, and dignity are a heartfelt suffering. The church, entrusted with the earth's glory, believes that in each person is the creator's image and that everyone who tramples it offends God. As holy defender of God's rights 
and of his images, the church must cry out. It takes as spittle in its face, as lashes on its back, as the cross in its passion, all that human beings suffer, even though they be unbelievers, they suffer as God's images. That line, the church must cry out, reminded me of the stones in our story that Jesus said would cry out. There are places in our world where human suffering is so apparent, so visible, that even lifeless stones can testify to its reality. And Oscar Romero says, it is our job as the church to give voice to that suffering, to make sure that the world does not try to silence it, but to step in like the stones who would cry if they could and offer our voices in testimony. In our time, it has become harder and harder for us to embrace role, the role of witness. It has become increasingly difficult to raise our voices in testimony of any kind, in the face of this strange post-truth culture that is so sharply divided that debate has given way to silent hatred, it is tempting to say nothing. But Holy Week reminds us that how we use our voices matters deeply. Are we crying Hosanna to the Jesus that we, like those crowds, might be wishing for? the one who hates our same enemies and takes down those who most irritate us and brings us the kind of power and wealth and status that we think we deserve? Or are we witnessing to the real power of our God, to the Jesus who reversed the definition of power so that the greatest among us is the one who serves most, the king who comes to save the least and the lost, who eats with sinners and heals the sick, who welcomes the outcasts, the unclean, and the foreigners, who speaks out for justice for the poor, the voiceless, and the powerless, and who loves us with the fierce love of a devoted parent and invites us incessantly to give up the self-destructive paths and patterns that the world calls us to and choose instead the abundant life he offers. My friends, it is Holy Week. And I invite you during this week to hear the story again, to see and listen to the truth of who our God is as he eats with his disciples that last time, serving them, kneeling to wash their feet. As he tells them he is leaving them with a new commandment, the new covenant to love one another as he has loved them as he suffers the abuse and torture and humility at the hands of the power systems of the day. And let us listen to how even as he hangs on the cross, he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they are doing. This is the God in whose name we gather, to whom our voices should testify in praise and wonder, and to whom our lives should testify as we work for the inbreaking of God's kingdom here on earth crying out in joy to witness wherever God's love is embodied and crying out in protest wherever it is denied, wherever God's children suffer. I'd like to leave you with a poem, a wonderful poem that my father introduced me to from the Pulitzer Prize winning poet and former laureate Richard Wilbur. He uses the metaphor of the stones crying out as witnesses to Jesus' life from his birth to his death and his resurrection. And I'd like us to 
listen to the role of the stones and imagine that this is our role too, to be these kinds of witnesses at each step of the journey. Begins with Christ's birth. A stable lamp is lighted, whose glow shall wake the sky. The stars shall bend their voices, and every stone shall cry. And every stone shall cry, and straw like gold shall shine. A barn shall harbor heaven, a stall become a shrine. This child through David's city shall ride in triumph by. The palm shall strew its branches, and every stone shall cry. And every stone shall cry, though heavy, dull, and dumb, and lie within the roadway to pave his kingdom come. Yet he shall be forsaken and yielded up to die. The sky shall groan and darken, and every stone shall cry. And every stone shall cry for stony hearts of men, God's blood upon the spearhead, God's love refused again. But now, as at the ending, the low is lifted high, the stars shall bend their voices, and every stone shall cry. And every stone shall cry in praises, praises of the child by whose descent among us the worlds are reconciled. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website, www.ucclittlecompton.org. And if you'd like to show some appreciation for what you've heard today, we invite you to please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support our ministry by clicking the donate link in the show notes. The tradition at our church is to end every service with this simple prayer. God be with you till we meet again. By God's counsels, God uphold you. With his sheep securely fold you. God be with you till we meet again. Go in peace. Peace.